Hi, and welcome to PH Drinking, the podcast where I interview graduate students from a variety of fields all about their research. I'm your host, Sadie Witkowski, and with me today is a rising fifth-year graduate student uh, in the biology department at Tufts University, and uh, she doesn't like peanut butter, which is the weird fact of the day I've learned. <laughs> uh, welcome, uh, Rachel Bamoan. Bamoan. Ah! Yeah, you did it. <laughs> I did it. <laughs> Last names are so anxiety-inducing. Sorry. Um, so you said you had a random B fact, and I want you to tell me that before you tell me about your drink. Great. So random B fact going along with the peanut butter, actually, is that the honeybee alarm pheromone actually smells like bananas. Um, so a lot of the times I have observation hives with little air vents, so I tell people to blow into the air vent and then take a sniff. And if you make a bee angry, they will emit a chemical that smells like banana. So That is so <laughs> cool. Right? Oh, my God. So if you're keeping bees and you start to smell something kind of like bananas, that means you should probably close the hive up. That's so awesome. Yeah. I did not know that at all. Cool bee fact. Uh, so we're about to get into all kinds of bee research because that's what you do. But first of all, I should ask uh, what you're drinking today. So I am drinking UFO raspberry. From Harpoon. <gasps> I went to Harpoon. Okay, so ComSciCon, shout out. This is my second ComSciCon interview. Nice. Um, but we definitely went to Harpoon, and I drank a ton of it there. It I do I do love Harpoon, so yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I'm having a Wiseacre Ananda IPA, so it's very orangey, and I'm drinking it out of my Aeronaut Brewing glass because nice. I got super excited. <laughs> ComSciCon. <laughs> I know. All of the cups. I'm even wearing the t-shirt. Like, it's it's a problem today. That's legit. I'm drinking <laughs> mine out of a can, so not as classy. That's okay. Well, anyways, cheers. Cheers. Yeah, fake clink because we're, uh, we're doing this long distance because right now you are at Tufts um, studying bees. So how, how did you even get into that kind of research? Because it seems so cool but also so niche. Yeah, so I started studying bees because originally – I studied zebra finches, which are birds, so it doesn't really make much sense at the start, but zebra finches, like honeybees, are social. So I started studying zebra finches as an undergrad. I really liked the fact that they were social. Then I had a, another internship studying butterflies. I really liked the fact that they were insects, but I wished they were social, which led me to apply to graduate programs with social insects, which are ants, termites, some wasps, and some bees. So I applied to ant labs and termite labs and bee labs and wasp labs, um, and the honeybee lab was the one where I fit in the best. And from there, I kind of just fell in love with the honeybees and started beekeeping because I have to keep my bees to study my bees. Um, and so going forward, even after I get my PhD, I do hope to keep bees for leisure one day, but we'll see how that goes. <laughs> no, that's awesome. I was going to say you pick kind of the prettiest insect of the uh, social animals. Of the people ones I think, listed, yeah. <laughs> yeah. People are like, ooh, termites. Uh. Honeybees um, are definitely charismatic, which helps a lot, yes. How many of your friends are like terrified of bees? Um, Actually, fewer than you would think. I have two that are absolutely terrified Um. So I have observation hives at Tufts, which is really great for kind of exposure therapy, right? So they're just these smaller hives with plexiglass windows that people can look into without actually a fear of getting stung because the bees are, you know, encased in plexiglass. 
Um, and the honeybee social system is so complex and amazing that I can win a lot of people over by showing them my observation hives. Um, but I do have one friend who is so terrified of the, the buzzing sound that she will not go into my little shed with my observation hives in it. Um, so I think she's my most terrified friend, but usually if someone says they're scared, I bring them to my observation hives and I win them over. I even won over my 70 plus year old grandmother. Um, <laughs> she loved them and she was telling me how much better she felt now that she saw that I don't work in like the middle of nowhere, which sometimes I do that too. But um, the observation hives definitely help. So not too many friends are terrified of bees. Thankfully, my fiance is not terrified of bees and he's actually helped me with a lot of my beekeeping, um, which has been great. That's awesome. Is he also like in the scientific field or did he just get into bees and like wanted cheap honey? <laughs> um, yeah. So he's actually in the consulting field. He has a degree in um, economics and psychology. And for his psych degree, he took a lot of um, like experimental design classes. So I can talk to him about my work and my experimental design and my research. But when he starts to talk to me about his work, it kind of goes over my head. Um, so he and to does- be fair... I know psychologists who study bees. Yeah, like I've definitely right? been to poster sessions where they like have like these really cool colored posters and they're talking about like the social dynamics of bees and I was like I am fascinated by this. Yeah, so it's really great cuz I can talk to him about what I do um and he gives me great feedback. As far as helping me out, it's kind of just been like a I really need help, please come help me and he does. <laughs> um And he has liked it. Normally when he helps me, he's like the photographer, the videographer, so he doesn't really get too down and dirty. Um, But last time he came out with me, he actually got stung in a very unfortunate spot. A bee went up his pants. Um, And he still wants to marry me, so thankful. That's good. Um, But yeah. I think his helping with the bees is more just helping me out than falling in love with the bees. But one day I plan on having a hive in our backyard, so he's going to have to fall in love with the bees. So. Oh, heck yeah. We went, <laughs> I went to uh, Noma in Copenhagen. It's this like really famous restaurant. And they had their own like urban beehives in the city of Copenhagen. That's so cool. And you could tell some tours were really freaked out. And I was like, ooh, this is so interesting. Yeah. Like, really fresh honey. That's so cool. Yeah, so that's usually the sell, right? Even to your neighbors, it's like, well, if you let me have some hives here, I'll give you some free delicious honey. Um, So that's usually the sell. And pollination, right? So if you have a vegetable garden, I will add to that with my bees. (laughs) So is what you're studying, are you interested in the social dynamics of these animals or the, like, how they pollinate flowers? Like, like. Within, within the large field of bees, what are, what's your kind of main driving research question? So I, it's kind of like a combination of both. So I'm technically a nutritional ecologist. And what that means is I study how changes in the environment affect honeybee health, basically. Um, and it's really cool to study in honeybees because their diet naturally changes with the seasons because their diet is flowers, right? So... At certain times of the year, they don't have a lot of flowers around. They don't have a lot of food choices. And I'm really interested in how they're affected by that, both in their immune system as well as their behavior. So the oldest bees in the hive, they're the the females, they're the workers. I'm sorry, the oldest bee in the hive is the queen. But the oldest workers in the hive, um, they're the foragers. And they go out to collect food and bring it back 
for the rest of the hive, which is really cool. Um, so one question I'm investigating this summer specifically is when we restrict the hive's diet, do the foragers look for more diverse floral sources? So if we only give them certain nutrients, are they going out and looking for more outside in the field? Um, so that's one specific question we're interested in, but I'm really interested in how do changes in the environment affect honeybee health and behavior, specifically when it comes to nutrition? That's so interesting because it kind of reminds me of, I want to say it was Planet Money did a podcast where they were talking about how uh, beehives are shipped all over the U.S. to to pollinate all these different kinds of crops. So if it's blueberry season, then you'll they'll literally rent a bunch of beehives to come out and pollinate so they can have a good crop of blueberries or strawberries or, you know, apples or what, what have you. And so there's clearly some like economic interest just even for farmers in this and for other, you know, it's not, it's not just about the bugs in a lot of right. ways. Which is really exciting for me and helpful for writing grants, right? Because a lot of these things that bees are getting trucked around to are monocultures. So they only have one type of flower. And I'm really interested in how that affects bee health and how we might be able to just inexpensively supp supplement that monoculture diet to kind of, bolster bee health because um, everyone asks me like oh colony collapse disorder honeybees are dying what can I do um, and my answer is always there are so many factors affecting bees in the environment that we cannot control and so my view and my take and what my research is trying to do is look at just how can we keep bees naturally healthy and then if they're naturally healthy, maybe they'll be better off when it comes to diseases or pesticides or all of these other stressors. So a lot of times beekeepers, this is not published data at all, this is all anecdotal, but beekeepers hate sending their honeybees to almonds because their hives come back really unhealthy. And to me, mm. that suggests that maybe they're not getting all the nutrients they need from the almond grove. So maybe if we just planted some more flowers interspersed in that almond grove, those bees will be healthier because they'll have more nutrients, which could lead to bigger hives, which might lead to more pollination overall. So that's the big overarching commercial application of my research. Um, but right now we live in little New England where these seasonal changes in diet are easily and readily available. And so that's technically what I study is the seasonality in diet but it can be applied to these monocultures as well. So then are you also doing a lot of gardening to kind of try to restrict or organize their diet locally to you, or are they just foraging so far that you're not going to be able to plant enough flowers? Yeah, so a honeybee can actually forage up to a 10-kilometer radius from its hive. Oh um, yeah, it's ridiculous. They comfortably forage about 4 kilometers in radius, which is still big but much smaller, um, and they'll go outside of that if they need to. So the way we restrict their diet, because obviously forcing them to eat a diet on our terms as far as flowers goes is a little difficult. Those monocultures get giant, so that's definitely forcing them to eat something. Mm -hmm. um, what we actually do is we restrict their pollen diet. So honeybees collect pollen and nectar from plants. Nectar is their main source of carbohydrates, and pollen is their main source of protein. And I'm specifically interested in amino acids. So there are 10 essential amino acids that honeybees have got to get from the pollen or else they don't get it at all. Um, so what we've been doing is we're raising honeybees on specific amino acid diets. 
And we can control this because we can make the amino acid diets, put them in the hives, and then basically steal the pollen from the bees, which is a little bit sad. But the foragers, so the ones I was telling you about earlier, when they collect pollen, they store it on their legs in pollen pellets. So you may have seen a bee flying around with like these orange or yellow balls on her back legs. Um, some people call them pollen pants. But basically, <laughs> they're pollen pellets that the bees bring back to the hive. What you can do is put a pollen trap on the hive, which is a mesh grid with holes just big enough for a bee to fit through. So the bee will crawl through this hole, her pollen pellets will get knocked off, um, and they actually get knocked off into a drawer. So as a bonus, we get to collect all of this pollen, which can be used for other data analysis. Um, so we're collecting the pollen from them, we're restricting the amino acids they're bringing back naturally, and then we're giving them the amino acids we want them to eat. Um, so our experimental diets we're doing this summer and that we did last summer are a full amino acid diet, so all 10 out of 10 essential amino acids bees need. And then the other one we're doing, which is our quote-unquote monofloral amino acid diet, has the six amino acids honeybees would get from a strict dandelion pollen diet, which is ecologically relevant here in New England because in early spring that's pretty much all they have to eat. That's so interesting. I didn't realize how much you were able to control the diet of the the whole hive through these very clever applications um, without really impacting their behavior. It's not like you're literally restricting their foraging range or anything. Right. So if we wanted to restrict nectar collection, that's another story because they carry the nectar back to the hive in their honey crop, which is like basically their throat. Um, so you can't really control that, which is part of the reason we went with amino acids, because you can control that really well in the field. In the lab, you can obviously control whatever you want, um, but I'm a field biologist, and I like being outside, so I chose Yeah, I'm pollen. so jealous. <laughs> <laughs> yep, I spend my days, you know, I my legs stay pale because I wear pants in the field, but the rest of me gets a pretty good tan, and I just really love being outside, so... Um, can't complain there. <laughs> yeah, as a psychologist and as a person living in Chicago, it's like, well, <laughs> it's light for four hours today. <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah, in the winter, it's pretty rough. I believe it. Yeah, thankfully, bees have a pretty, like, pretty good schedule as far as when they're active. So bees are mostly active on warm, sunny days um, and not cold, rainy ones. So we don't have to be in the field on cold, rainy days, um, which is really nice. That's a bonus of working with honeybees. I know some people have to be out in some weird conditions for their field work. <laughs> so when you're um, when you're looking at the outcomes from restricting their diet in this way, are you like capturing some of the bees and looking at nutritional health in some way? Are you looking at behavior? Is it a mix? It's definitely a mix. Um, so we collect a bunch of different data. One thing we collect is the actual pollen the bees are bringing back to the hive. So that pollen trap I was telling you about actually knocks the pollen pellets into a drawer that we can just pull out and dump into a bag for sampling. Um, and that's really cool because then you can do DNA analysis and microscopy to actually identify which plants the bees are foraging from. So that's one thing I'm looking at. How does floral diversity change with um, a nutritional deficiency with amino acids? We also collect data on foraging behavior. Um, so my interns, my trusty interns, could not do this data collection without them. We sit outside each hive that we have for 10 minutes at a time and count the number of bees that are leaving the hive. 
Um, <laughs> so it's pretty time intensive, but we get to sit outside, like I said. Um, so we count the number of bees leaving the hive. So that's the number of bees leaving to go find food. And then we also count the number of bees coming back to the hive with those pollen pellets on their legs. So we can measure both how many bees are getting food and how many bees are actually coming back with pollen. Um, so we get some pollen foraging behavior. So that's pretty much what we do in the field as far as data collection. I also have sampled some bees from the hives um, because I did a project last summer on how these diets affect their gut microbiome. Um, and I just got that sequencing data back, I want to say, uh, March or April, and I really have not looked at it yet because it came back as field season began. Um, so I can't say much about that, but I did sample bees for that study. And then also this year, um, we're doing immune challenges to see how they react when they're infected with something. Um, so we're sampling bees to bring back to the lab to do physiological immune stuff, but we're also installing bees from our typical backyard hives, which are called Langstroth hives, that have been raised on these diets, into my observation hives, which I was telling you about earlier, and then we're infecting them with a heat-sensitive pathogen. And normally, when a hive is strong enough, they react to this heat-sensitive pathogen by raising the hive temperature and basically generating a fever. Um, Whoa! Right? So cool! So <laughs> the fever kills the pathogen, the bees stay healthy. And what we're doing is we've take, taken these two different diet treatments, we're installing the bees in observation hives, infecting them with this heat-sensitive pathogen, and then using thermal imaging to detect the efficiency of fever response in our bees. Um, so we did a pilot study on that last year that went pretty well. Um, we have a new thermal imaging camera this year, so I expect it to go even better. Um, but we're starting that data collection next week. So again, can't say much about that, but I'm really excited. That's so incredibly interesting. I had no idea that, I mean, it's a hive, kind of like the Borg. <laughs> it makes All sense right. that they would have a group response, but that's insane. Yeah. So honeybees are often referred to, and other social insects, as super organisms because they're a bunch of individual organisms that work so well together that they can make up this like whole giant organism, which is really cool. Um, yeah, that's a fun bee fact, but I didn't want to steal the thunder at the beginning of the show. So <laughs> so do you think out of all of these other superorganisms, these cooperative uh, insect species, do you think bees are some of the best studied because they've been so useful for us in terms of like human evolution and development? Like we've been keeping bees for a long time. Yeah, I, I think you're right on that. So there are like cave drawings and Egyptian hieroglyphics of people keeping bees. Like they find honey in tombs in Egypt, like ancient honey. Um, my boyfriend went on a kick about this and was researching <laughs> all the different kinds of bees. He's like, oh my God, there are like so many different kinds of honeybees. I was like, oh no, this is going to be a thing. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, we have, we've definitely been harnessing honeybees for a long time. And so our history is definitely more intertwined with honeybees than say ants or termites. Um, I think also Honeybees are really smart. I mean, ants and termites are also smart. Um, but honeybees, like you were saying, make their way into psychology departments, neurology departments, um, whereas the ants and termites tend to stay more into the behavior-focused departments. Um, so I think honeybees are the most versatile as well as the most intertwined with humans as a whole, which is really cool. Yeah, I just think that's so fascinating. And 
Yeah, we were, there was a, um, recently in the spring, we were sitting outside at a restaurant and they had a bunch of flowers around the restaurant and there were all these different bugs hanging around. And at first, um, one of my friends thought it was a bee and I was like freaking out. I was like, <laughs> I think that's one of those bee mimickers. And we had to like pull out yeah. our phones and we're like, you know, research. It's like, no, no, it's definitely a fly that tries to look like a bee so you don't fuck with it. Yep. Like, I just thought that was so cool. There are a lot of those and a lot of people, I actually... So I'm a member of the American Beekeeping Federation, and I get a newsletter like once a month or something. And one of the covers of their newsletter had hoverflies on it instead of honeybees. Oh! I was was so in shock. I emailed the editor right away. Um, But yes, people are often tricked by those flies, so good on you for catching that. (laughs) I was very proud of myself to have recognized that. Yeah. So when you started... When you started on bees, before that you were doing butterflies, what were you doing with the butterflies? So the butterflies, I was also manipulating their nutrition, um, but for different questions. So with the butterflies, I was studying this type of butterfly called the sulfur butterfly, um, is their common name. It's in the genus Coleus, if there are any butterfly nerds out there. Um, But here in New England, there are two female morphs. So there's a yellow female and a white female and the yellow female is more preferred by males but the white female is actually more fecund and so I was interested in looking at how nutrition might affect this trade-off so what I did is I caught butterflies in the field which was a lot of fun and a lot harder than it sounds (laughs) Um, pro tip it's so much easier to catch butterflies right after a rainstorm because they're like super slow and out of it Um, We caught so many butterflies on that one day. Um, So I brought them back to the lab. I mated them. I made the females lay eggs on their preferred host plant. Um, And then I literally raised the eggs to adults. So like I I was keeping caterpillars in the lab on different diets. Um, So we had a high quality diet, which is this host plant called vetch um, that bees also love, but butterflies and caterpillars love as well. And a low quality diet, which was clover which is pretty much just like your run-of-the-mill plant. They can find it everywhere, so if we can't find anything else, we're going to settle on that. Um, So I literally had to go into the field and collect all of these diets for my caterpillars. Um, (laughs) And then I fed them to my caterpillars, raised them up, and then once I had enough males and females, I would do mating trials to figure out if the male's preference might change based on nutritional status. So normally males prefer yellow females, but if this white female was better nutritionally, would he prefer her? Um, and the answer we came to was probably, um, it was part of a 10 week internship and our sample sizes were really small because about halfway through, um, my grad student and I were doing our lab work and a professor came in and said, you realize you have two different species here, right? <laughs> We were like, no. Um, So our sample sizes got really tiny. Um, So it's hard to say exactly what's going on, but the white females are probably less affected by diet than the yellow females are. Um, That's what we found. But again, it was nutrition. It was the environment. Um, Before I did that program, I thought I wanted to go to medical school, and that program really solidified I want to be outside all the time if possible. so that was really great. That's so awesome. That I like I can't imagine literally spinning like getting paid to do research by catching butterflies <laughs> or hand raising them by yeah, picking plants. That was like a really like 
revelation moment for me because I've always loved to be outside and I've always loved to catch bugs. So that summer, I was like, wait a minute, like I can get paid to do this for the rest of my life? And the answer is yes, um, but not if I want to go to medical school. So I changed my course, went in the social insect and grad school route, and now I get to continue playing outside with insects. That's so cool. So so you're doing all this research, but um, are you outside year round? You, you have field seasons, right? Yeah. So field season tends to be May through August. Um, and I say tends to because last year I did a study with an undergraduate where we sampled bees starting in May and ending in November to look at how their nutri- nutrient content in adult bees changes throughout the season. Um, so that was like slightly abnormal as far as field season. Um, I've also done fall stuff with um, water foraging and honeybees, so that went through to October. So the latest I've ever been in the field doing research is, I think it was like November 19th um, last year. I just looked at this data set, so I remember that date pretty clearly. (laughs) Um, So that's the latest I've ever been in the field, and then the the late fall and the wintertime tends to be for data analysis, and if I have to do any lab work. So the gut microbiome study, I did all of the lab work um, in the wintertime when the bees are dormant. And I do have to check on the bees once in a while in the wintertime just to make sure they're doing okay, but it's not like any real field work is happening at that point. So like I said, it's great studying honeybees because they're active when I want to be active, and they're dormant when I want to stay inside. Um, So that works out really well. That's so awesome. I mean, I find this so interesting because when we think about traditional biology roots, you do tend to think of either like pre-med or maybe something that's more, I don't know. We tend to think of big mammals. We don't think about insect studies. Did you take a class that kind of got you interested in this kind of research or? So sort of. I did take, I think it was my senior year of college. Um, I guess this did spark my interest. So after I did my butterfly research, Um, I went back to college because that was before my senior year and a class, I took a class on comparative immunology um, and I'm doing some immune stuff now and that class we covered not just mammalian immunology which I had taken and I really liked but we covered plant immunity, insect immunity, bacterial immunity Um, and I so I think that really sparked my interest and just a knowledge in the fact that you can do these kinds of things with insects. Um, it's like you're saying, I mean, here on my committee, I have an immunologist, but he specifically specializes in mammalian immunology. Um, so he asks me really great physiological questions in committee meetings, and he always loves to hear about my research because it's something like different than he's used to hearing about, but also something he can understand. Um, but you're right. It's like, most people don't think about insects. Um, And that's why I really love being a part of the um, National Science Foundation Research Experience for Undergraduate programs here at Tufts. So that's the program I did my butterfly research in. Um, And here I get to be a graduate student mentor for that program. And I take one to two students every summer from universities around the U.S., and they get to do research with honeybees, and usually they fall in love with them. I have one, my current one just told me, I can't believe I'd ever be fascinated so much by the behavior of insects. And that (laughs) is, like, what I live for, you know? 
Um, it's very exciting to hear an undergrad say that. I mean, last year's student that worked with me is working in a B lab at her own institution this year, which is really cool. Um, so yeah, it's, it's definitely something you're not traditionally exposed to. So I definitely love exposing people to the possibility. Like I love helping students decide, yes, I want to be pre-med. No, I don't want to be pre-med. Yes, I want to be outside. No, I don't want to be outside. You know, that's, it's a necessary decision you have to make um, if you're going to be happy for the rest of your life, I think. And Yeah, and especially as an undergrad, like make yeah. that decision now before you've invested in a graduate career. Make sure that the field work will do something for you. Yeah, most definitely. Um, my animal behavior professor also uh, talked to us a lot about social insects. He studied dolphins and sociality in dolphins, so he loved anything having to do with sociality. Um so him talking to us about the insects definitely helped me as well, I think. That's so cool. And now you also do a bunch of outreach type stuff, right? Like, didn't you do a TEDx talk? I did do a TEDx talk, and I, like, very briefly mentioned honeybees in that. Um, but the main, the main idea of the TEDx talk is if you're outside, you're doing science. Um, so I gave a talk about how, as a child, I was outside doing all of this stuff with insects, and I didn't realize that what I was doing was science because I couldn't identify with the scientists that I saw on TV or in classrooms or whatever. Um, so my TEDx talk is basically about how we can help kids embrace science just by engaging them in curiosity and engaging them outdoors because that's something everyone has access to. Um, and I feel like, like you were mentioning earlier, the idea of scientists is kind of like this elite person in a white lab coat in an expensive lab which is not always the case at all. Like, yes, that person can be a scientist, but you don't have to be that person to be a scientist. Um, so that's what my TEDx talk was about. But I do do a lot of research. I just went to a museum in the area this weekend. Not research, outreach. Um, I just went to a museum. <laughs> I do research too. This weekend where we did like an All About Bees event where I basically just have a table where I let people taste honey and make a candle and kind of experience those hive products. Um, and I think that's another good way of getting people away from being afraid of bees and realizing how useful they are to everyday life for us and that we need them. Um, we also bring bee parts that we put under microscopes that people love to look at, um, specifically the stinger. Um, so that's just another way of bringing science to the public, but also kind of helping the public not be afraid of bees. Um, and I've found in being in grad school that doing outreach is really what I love doing. Talking about science, communicating science is like, it gives me this like adrenaline rush that giving a conference presentation doesn't necessarily give me. Um, I still like conference presentations, but it's just not the same. It's um, a different kind of yeah, thing. The nice thing about a conference is that you can use all of your big fancy words and abbreviations yeah. and they can follow along, right. but also like they're not super stoked about your really basic findings. <laughs> right, exactly. And I was talking to, so I have the luxury of having this already invested general audience in beekeepers. Um, so I've talked to so many beekeepers. I've talked at beekeeping conferences, which are so much fun. And my office mate who studies climate change in tea talks to a lot of people at tea shops. And so I was talking to him about it, and he was saying that it's so much fun to talk to the already interested general public because, one, they're already interested, and, two, they think you're, like, so smart, right? <laughs> like, 
Like, if you talk at a scientific conference, everyone just expects you to know what you're talking about. But if you talk to beekeepers or people at a tea shop, they're they're just in awe by how much you know. Um, Which I think, as grad students, we need that confidence boost once in a while. Because it's it's very easy to forget that you know a lot as a grad student. Because we're always we're always focused on how little we know, right? <laughs> like Yeah, and trying to like fill in the gaps as yeah, quickly as possible. Right. So I think that's one of the ways that talking to the general public helps me as a grad student and a person. Um so Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I've given a couple talks for like high school students and I've done some public lectures and it's always so fun because you can see people's faces light up and then they want to ask you all these questions and you don't always know the answer. Be like, oh, that's really interesting. We're not really sure. There's not good research there. Or like, yeah, I can direct you to someone who might know. And and they're just excited that you know someone who might know something. And they think you're like amazing. And kids ask the best questions. Oh, heck yeah. So this weekend... A little kid asked me, so I was talking to him about how the bees bring the pollen back to the hive on their legs. And he was like, how do they get the pollen off their legs if they don't have hands? <laughs> I was like, oh my gosh, that's such a good question. You know, um, they just they just think so literally sometimes that their questions are just so good. Well, how do they get it off? This is important to so, know. So it is very important. So they use their front legs. So they store their pollen on the backmost legs, and they use their frontmost legs as hands to kind of like push the pollen down into the hive. And pollen's really sticky, so they sometimes get help from other bees, and it's really funny to watch. Um, <laughs> but I even did like a little demonstration for the kid with like my hands and my leg, and I was like, you know, pretending to wipe imaginary pollen off my leg. Um, and then his follow-up question was, does it hurt? <laughs> and I was like, I don't think it hurts. But that's a great question that I've never thought of, right? Like, I was explaining how it was very sticky. And when you think about having, like, sticky gum in your hair, it's kind of painful to pull out, even if someone's helping you. So yeah. maybe it hurts them a little bit, but who knows? Oh, my gosh. That's awesome. Yeah. Well, so do you think that you're going to stick to studying bees? Have you thought about, I mean, fifth year, I don't know what how long your program is, but we usually are expected to graduate around five or six. So. Yeah, so I hope to be wrapping up my thesis by next spring. Um, and this has been my, my debacle in my head, right? Like, I love honeybees, and it'd be really easy for me to stay with them. But I also don't want to pigeonhole myself, and I love social insects. So maybe I'll look into something, doing some more research with a different social insect for a couple years um, to kind of get a little bit more experience. Um, That's an idea I have. But even if I leave honeybees for a couple years, I will definitely come back to them. Um, Future career goal is professor at a teaching intensive institution with undergrads that I can mentor in research, and honeybees just lend themselves so well to undergraduate research projects, um, especially when you can keep observation hives, which I have lots of experience in and are really easy to keep. So I will, down the line, end up with honeybees again, but I think I'm going to take a break for a couple years and do something with another social insect. Um, because they are all really cool. Ants are incredible. Uh, termites are really cool. They're just maybe not as fuzzy and charismatic as honeybees. (laughs) We can't all be, you know? Yeah. 
We all have to stay in our lanes. And I, okay, the last question I have to ask is how many bad B puns do you think of or hear thrown at you? I hear your research career. a gajillion. And honestly, <laughs> I hear most of them from beekeepers. Beekeepers are the worst with <laughs> They just like spend all day with them. And the, the main bee pun is just using like B-E-E instead of B-E, which is actually in my Twitter handle. Um, or instead of the letter B, use B-E. <laughs> um, but yeah, I hear so many bee puns like, oh, doesn't that sting? Ha ha ha. I'm kind of like immune to it at this point, but... It's okay. Yeah. I have to say that when I started this interview, every time I was using the to be verb, all I could think of was bees. I was like, oh, this is terrible. Yeah, it's actually pretty bad. My iPhone corrects, autocorrects B to B-E-E <laughs> and give to hive. So I may have some bee puns inadvertently because my autocorrect has learned that I'm a beekeeper. That's awesome. But, yeah. Um. Well, I think that just about wraps it up. So I wanted to say thanks to everyone for listening to this episode. And if you like the show, please tell your friends about the podcast. As always, leave us a review on iTunes or Google Play because that review helps bump me in the charts and uh, gets me noticed by more audience members. In addition, I should mention that I just started a Patreon account where you can become a patron of the podcast. That just helps support production costs considering I'm using my uh, measly graduate student stipend right now. <laughs> yeah. That's to pay life. for uh, – oh, I know. <laughs> Every time I spend money, I'm like, ooh. Yeah. But uh, yeah, so I pay for the hosting and wonderful friend of the show, Tyler Dammy, um, has wonderfully offered to edit the podcast for free. So um, just becoming a patron would help kind of make this a more sustainable project. Um, and then if you want to know more about Rachel and their research, re- and her research, uh, you can find links in the show notes or podcast description um, when this is posted. And if you want to hear what I'm up to, you can find me on Twitter at PHDrinking or my personal account at Sadie Witt. And then, Rachel, how would you like listeners to be able to find out more about you and your work? Um, so to find out more about me and my work, the best way is either Twitter or my website. Um, so my Twitter handle is Rachel with an extra A. So R-A-C-H-A-E-L-E-B-B-E-E. Um, that's my Twitter handle. And my website is Rachel with an extra A, E-B-O-N-O-A-N, B-O-N-O-A-N dot com. Um, and you can find blogs there and photos and all cool B things as well. Yeah, that sounds great. And I'm definitely going to be checking that out because now I'm, I'm super excited. Um, and thanks again for joining me on the show. Thank you so much for having me. It was so great to meet you at ComSciCon back in uh, June at this point. And yeah, it's been a blast talking to you. I know. This has been great. We'll, we'll meet up in person at some point when uh, we're both in the same state <laughs> when, to begin with. When our paths cross, when your psychology conferences bring me and my animal behavior conferences together somehow. <laughs> it's possible. Yeah. It can be done. Bees, right? <laughs> Bees extend from psychology to animal behavior, so it's all good. Exactly. Uh, And to all you listeners out there, cheers. Thanks for listening.